finished chapter 7. And so naturally you should think, well, we're going to chapter 8, right? Uh, just hold on. <laughs> Last week we looked at uh, our message was entitled Spiritual Autobiography. Now, um, one of my, I guess we could call it a hobby, is uh, solving uh, some word puzzles. Uh, I don't really particularly care for crossword puzzles or word searches or whatever. Uh, maybe some of you like those. But I like cryptograms, crypto quizzes. And uh, so I, I like to, to solve. They're kind of like little mini detective uh, things, and I, I try to figure out the clues. It's basically what it is, is you try to, uh, you've, you have a whole bunch of letters there, and you try to figure out what letter that letter represents. I mean, a V can be an A. Well, you have to figure out what that is, or uh, it can be something else, but you, you come up with a little saying. And so I have this book that I go through all these, and I find these sayings. Well, the saying that I came up with uh, this week was a um, an auto, you can depend on one thing, that autobiographies, the person will give a good account of himself. That's what they, uh, you know, if somebody's going to write a, a biography about themselves, autobiography, that's somebody writing their life story, well, not very many people are going to say, well, how bad they were, or, uh, you know, all the terrible things that happened to them. Uh, if they do, they're going to come out, you know, smelling like a rose at the end. They're going to be come out looking good. Well, Paul didn't necessarily talk about himself in a very good light in chapter 7, did he? He admitted to the fact that he had a real battle going on with uh, his old sin nature. Things he uh, thought, you know, the things he, was, uh, he should do, he didn't do. And the things he didn't do, he should do. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can say, well, that's me, too. And so uh, it doesn't necessarily just have to be Paul's biography, but it can be your biography, my biography as well. Uh, Now, the thing about crypto quizzes, books, they're not inspired. (laughs) They have some nice sayings in them. They also have some very dumb things that they say in there. But, uh, you know, the Bibles can be... Uh, some people think the Bible's a puzzle book, that it, it's puzzling to them. And so they don't, they can't quite figure it out. So it's kind of like a, you know, a puzzle that you have to figure it out. Well, I think it can be looked at that way, but one thing it is, it's, it's a book that is filled with truth. And, uh, it's, it is truth. And so it's not just a puzzle book like my puzzle books are. And, uh, I trust that, uh, the one thing we do have is the Holy Spirit to guide us to all truth and, and to help us understand these things, which is one of the things that uh, I think is leads into what we're going to talk about this afternoon. And I want to examine some popular false teachings and how Paul deals with them in chapter 6 and 7. And in a way, this is a kind of a review of some of the things we've already seen in these two chapters, but it also touches on some things we did not previously look at as well. You know, we could uh, spend uh, many, many uh, weeks on just chapter 
one chapter of uh, Romans itself. But this is part of our study that will refute many of the false teachings about sanctification and Christian living that are going on uh, in our world today. And we're going to look at least uh, uh, three of them this afternoon. We're not going to, uh, there's more than we can look at, but we're not going to take time to look at a whole list of them. We could uh, uh, be here for quite a while, but uh, let me just look at three of them uh, for a few moments here in our time this afternoon. The first is the false doctrine of eradication. The false doctrine of eradication. Maybe you've never heard it called this, or uh, but it's the idea that according to this teaching, the sin nature is completely eradicated from a believer. In other words, once you get saved, you can never sin again. Not true. The sin nature is not eradicated. Uh, it's kind of like my lawn. You never get rid of the... The dandelions, it seems like, no matter how hard you try. But throughout this section and throughout the New Testament epistles, it is assumed that the believer still has a sin nature and that he has to learn to deal with it. There's no promise in the Scripture that the flesh will be eradicated in this present life. And so if we go back to chapter 6 and verse 1, and then also verse 15... We we'll talk about living after the flesh. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course, the answer to that was God forbid. In verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. I read the testimony of someone who said that his grandmother was one of the godliest Christians he had ever known. He said that he was confident that her prayers had a lot to do with his salvation after he had gone so far out into the world. And he further testified that she only lived a couple of years after he was saved, but he got to spend some time with her before she passed away. And this man said he had so many moral scars and struggles because of all the foolishness of his former life. He had been a hippie in the drug culture for a number of years. And so he had a lot of things that uh, he struggled with. But several months after he got saved, he asked his grandmother, Granny, do you still have struggles, any struggles with sin? And of course he was hoping she would tell him that those struggles had ended years ago and everything was smooth sailing. But she replied, oh yes, there are still many struggles. She was about 80 years old and had walked with Christ for more than 60 years. But there are still struggles. And I would say, dare say that some of our older folks here this afternoon would say they've been saved for many years, but they still struggle with sin. Is that right? The only time that a child of God escapes the struggle of sin is when he or she leaves this world, takes up residence in heaven. And so it's something that we're going to have to battle with. You say, well, I'm getting so tired of battling. Well, you're going to have to battle it until the Lord comes or he takes you home. We live after the flesh. And so that brings up the battle with the flesh. Now, we saw this last week in chapter 7, 
and verses 18 through 25, the battle. We also read in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now, the struggle, and I've used this illustration before, you've no doubt heard it about the two natures that we have, described as two dogs living inside of me, a black dog and a white dog, and the one I feed and the one I say sick him to is the one that, that will dominate, right? Another illustration of this struggle is the two wrestlers, or maybe even two boxers if you want to uh, use that illustration, but if one of the wrestlers would train and exercise and eat the right food and the other would spend all his time in his lazy boy and eat junk food, well, who's going to win? You know, within us, we have a flesh and we have the spirit. We have light and we have darkness. And when you're saved, you're made a new man, but the old man's still hanging around. And the question is, which do you feed the most? Whatever nature you feed the most will have, will be the nature that of, of life that dominates your life. And I believe there are many worldly Christians today because they spend the majority of their time feeding the old man. Another illustration would be the computer. Many, many years ago when I was teaching, I taught a little bit of computer science. Now, that was at a time when computers were just kind of catching hold, you know. Uh, and... Uh, uh, that's why I could teach it, because it was just at the beginning stages. I wouldn't be able to teach it today. For, uh, but computers have become very common part of our everyday life, haven't they? Uh, we don't even give it much thought. Some of, of course, there are some of you that uh, still aren't in the computer age. You're still living in the pencil and paper, and, and that's fine. But the computer terminology that is often used or uh, is output equals input. As I used to tell my students, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. G-I-G-O. Garbage in, garbage out. That's what happens with a computer. A computer won't do anything that you don't tell it to do. Now, some of you would think, well, my computer does things that I don't tell it to do. My computer's smarter than me. But what we put into a computer is what we're going to get out. If we feed it the wrong information, the computer will not function properly and we'll get misinformation from it. And if the computer is filled with junk and sinful information, such as can be gotten from the Internet today, you can access that information and, and that's what you'll get. You'll get junk and you'll get immorality. And just as there are methods of avoiding such information through all kinds of blockers, spam blockers, and filters, and so forth. So we need to protect our lives from the junk and the sinful information that feeds the old nature. In Proverbs 19, verse 27, it says, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. We could say, stop listening and watching the instruction that causes you to get away from the word of God. 
Now, it could come from our computers, it could come from our televisions, our radios, our MP3 players, whatever it is, but stop feeding the old nature. On the other hand, we need to do, as it says in Proverbs 23, 12, apply thine heart unto instruction and thine ears to the words of knowledge. So this old sin nature is not eradicated We must realize that we still have it, and we must feed it, not feed it, and we not let it dominate. The other thing is to note that about this false teaching of eradication, there's a distinguishing between position and practice. A distinguishing between position and practice. The teaching of eradication is based on a failure to distinguish between position and practice, standing and walking. Back in chapter 6 and verse 18 of Romans, it describes the believer's position in Christ, not his walk in the world. It says, being then made free from sin. You say, are we free from sin? No, we still have the old sin nature. It's... uh, uh, not been eradicated. We don't believe that, and that's not what the Bible teaches. But here it says, being then made free from sin, you become servants of righteousness. Yes, we have been made free from sin as we are in Christ, but we still have to deal with sin in this life. And that's what Paul is describing to us in chapter 7. Now, that brings us to another false doctrine, and that's the false doctrine of perfectionism. According to this doctrine, the believer can achieve sinless perfection in this life. There are those who believe that once they're saved, they don't sin anymore. They just make mistakes. They don't sin. Can you believe that? I knew a man who believed this. He was in one of the churches that we uh, ministered in, and uh, he believed this. He says, I don't sin anymore. I just make mistakes. <laughs> well, he was mistaking with that there, but he also had trouble with believing in eternal security. So I don't know, uh, quite know how he handled this, but when he and, uh, when and if he ever lost his salvation... I guess if he lost his salvation, then he started sinning again. I don't know. But he believed that uh, he didn't sin anymore. He just made mistakes. Well, Paul's teaching we find in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. Chapter 7 and verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. You see, this is how Paul refuted this belief in perfectionism. Remember, in these verses, Paul is not talking about an unsaved person. He's referring to himself. Remember, this is an autobiography. Himself, after he had gotten saved. Now, Paul does not say that humanity is all bad and can do no good. All people are capable of some good, and some are capable of a great deal more good than others. But what Paul does say is that no one does the good that he or she wills to do. 
Whatever good one does, it's less than it one ought to or could have done. Notice also that Paul says nothing of, uh, excuse me, nothing of character and convictions. You know, strong convictions and noble character are not enough. I, I've known some unsaved people that have some strong convictions about things. And they're, they have a good character. They're, you know, that's why we say, you know, he's a good person. Uh, that, is, that person is a good neighbor. I really, you know, they're so helpful to me. Uh, they may come by and, and shovel my, my, my walk, my driveway. Even if I don't want them to uh, shovel it. There was a man who got in trouble this week because he shoveled his neighbor's driveway and the neighbor got upset with him. Can you believe that? He says, I don't want him to shovel my driveway. Well, if somebody wants to come shovel my driveway, have at it. You know, there are people that have strong convictions. They have noble character, but that's not enough. Sin is active disobedience, the failure to do the will of God as it is revealed in this world. This should be much more evident in a Christian because they should know better than others what is expected of them. And so they are made increasingly aware of their failures in doing it, doing so. So that's what Paul's teaching is here. Now, if we go back and look at what Jesus taught, we see in 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, it says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not, is not in us. Again, this passage was written to believers. And so what are we to do when we realize we've sinned? Well, in verse 9 of 1 John 1, it says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus also taught us to pray that God would forgive us our trespasses. Luke, Luke 11, 4, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We also notice in Mark 11 and verse 25, And when you stand praying, forgive. If you ought, have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So we have Paul's teaching about perfectionism and Jesus' teaching. Uh, Jesus didn't believe that you could be perfect in this lifetime. He said, if you say you don't have any sin, well, you're, uh, you deceive yourself. But then there's also a lower standard teaching. And those who teach some form of sinless perfection often lower the standard of sin. Well, uh, they claim that they're living in a state of sinless perfection because they've redefined sin down to their level. level. I think... That man that I was talking about, I, that man that I said he believed that he never sinned anymore, I think that's what he referred to, or that's what he did. He lowered the standard for sin. And even when he mistreated his wife, I don't believe he believed that it was a sin. See, he had lowered the standard of sin. And so that's why he could say, well, I don't sin anymore. 
So you have the false doctrine of eradication, you have the false doctrine of perfectionism, and then thirdly, the false doctrine of the second blessing. Now, according to this doctrine, the believer needs to pursue a second blessing. Some call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some say that there are two baptisms, the first one for regeneration and a second one for sanctification. Some call it other names, but the crux of the doctrine is that a believer does not receive everything when he is born again, and so he needs to seek a second blessing. I heard of one Pentecostal preacher who claimed to be a prophet, promised, uh, and he promised believers that they could experience a fresh baptism and they could be lifted above the struggles with sin. And he invited believers to come forward and receive your spirit of baptism. Now, again, we look at the testimony, what the Bible teaches. And you look at the testimony of the New Testament, that no instruction in the New Testament for a believer to seek a second blessing or another baptism. The only reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in, an, in uh, the epistles, in the letters of Paul, is in the past tense. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For one by, by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made to drink into one Spirit. And let me just take a few moments to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are those who teach that the Holy Spirit baptizes a person into the body of Christ. I do not teach that, because I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Because I have only one problem with that. Nowhere in the Scriptures will you find where the Holy Spirit does any baptizing. Unless, of course, you adhere to the universal church theory. And those who hold to a universal church theory precariously prop up this Holy Spirit baptism theory with one verse. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You see, to say that this verse teaches Holy Spirit baptizes a person into the body of Christ is to take that verse out of context. Now, we've talked about that on our Wednesday night Bible studies lately with um, talking about Bible study principles. And Paul was speaking to the local church at Corinth. Uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, when you come together in the church, as we've done here today, we've come together. Now, he was talking about the local church there at Corinth. Now, how do you come together in an invisible church? If the church is all believers that are saved in the world, how do you come together? Well, obviously they can't. And all through chapter 11, Paul is speaking about the local church. Now, why would he then begin to talk about some universal, invisible church in chapter 12? Because that's where a lot of the universal church uh, people would say, well, that's, that's what it says in chapter 12. Why would he change from local church to universal church? 
I don't believe he does. Chapter 12 continues instruction to a local visible church. Now I want to make a further observation concerning this so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit as we find in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit are you all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made to drink into one Spirit. This verse and chapter was written to a church at Corinth. It's referred to 18 times as one body. This writing took place about 26 years after Pentecost, at which few, if any, Corinthians were even present. And we do know that Paul was not a believer at the time of Pentecost. And then the Corinthians' conversion and baptism is told in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, at that which time the Holy Spirit came to them. Now, each church is a body. And its members function as their head directs. Now, a functioning body must be assembled, not scattered over thousands of square miles. The church at Ephesus was a body. Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We also know that water baptism is an ordinance of a local New Testament church. The Spirit is never said to baptize anyone, but He does unify believing Jews and Greeks, bond and free, into one Spirit, one body, one accord, one purpose, and one responsibility. Nowhere in Scripture... Do we find a command, be baptized in, by, or with the Spirit? And so there is no baptism. There is no second blessing to be sought after in God's Word. I believe that's a false teaching. So we have the testimony of the New Testament. Then we also have the testimony of the Christian life. The Christian life is a walk, not a leap. Go back to Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, or verse 4. It says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, this is not as exciting as seeking a second blessing. And it's not as exciting as being able to leap above the struggles of the world and the flesh and the devil. But it is true Christian living. I think you'll be amazed, and I made note of this uh, the other night in our study on Bible study principles, uh, this idea of walking is used in the scriptures to picture the Christian life. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis, we find walk with God. Uh, Walk before God. By the way, who walked with God in Genesis? Enoch. Uh, We find in Deuteronomy, walking after God. 
Here in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, we said it talks about walk in newness of life. In chapter 13 and verse 13, it talks about walking honestly. Romans 13, 13 says, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting or drunkenness, not in chambering or wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it talks about walk by faith. And of course, we've already talked about Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, where it talks about walk in the Spirit. And so those are some examples. Let me give you some more. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, it says, Walk in good works, for by faith are you saved, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Verse 10. Who can finish it for me? Ephesians 2.10. Shame on us. Can't remember these things. Must be getting old. Or we're sleeping. Ephesians. Two ten, not of works, thus any man should both. For we are his what, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he hath foreordained that we should walk in them. Right there we go. And then Ephesians four and verse uh, one. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. Ephesians five and verse two, he says, and walk in love. In verse 15, he says, see that then that you walk circumspectly. Uh, in uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse uh, 10, uh, he talks about walking worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. In Colossians 2, 6, walk in Christ. In Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom and prudence. In 1 John 1, 7, walk in the light. 3 John 4 is walk in truth. Now, I've really only scratched the surface of the idea of walking in the Bible. It's a wonderful truth. And as you study God's Word, and I've done this not in the Bible I have here this afternoon, but uh, in another Bible, every time it came across the word walk, I circled it. It's It's a wonderful truth you find there. And so... The idea of, of, of living for the Lord, it's a walk. Sometimes walking gets hard, doesn't it? Sometimes we feel like we're walking uphill. We're climbing. Because the old sin nature keeps getting our, in our way and we, we, we struggle. So you have the testimony of the New Testament. You have the testimony of the Christian life. And then you have the testimony of Harry Ironside. I'll... Uh, I want to just share a little bit of the testimony of Harry, Harry Ironside as we close this afternoon. Because I think it's fitting to what we're talking about here of, of dealing with false doctrine. And this false doctrine of the second blessing. 
In his testimony, holiness, the false and the true, he dealt with this error. He said as a young Christian, he was involved with the Salvation Army and he accepted their doctrine of entire sanctification. He thought that if he could pray enough and fast enough and reform his life enough, that he would have a second touch and would be able to live above the struggle with sin thereafter. And after a period of earnest seeking, he became convinced that he had achieved that state, and he returned to the Salvation Army meetings and joyfully testified of his victory. It was not long after, though, that he realized that his struggle with sin was just as real as ever. He became so discouraged at this revelation that he had an emotional breakdown and was committed to a sanatorium. There he was visited by some godly believers who gave him some literature that refuted the error of entire sanctification and taught the biblical doctrine of sanctification, which we've been studying here in Romans. And he was established in his understanding of the Christian life, and he went on to have a long and fruitful preaching and writing ministry. But he had to deal with that at one point. And it drove him... Uh, drove him to the uh, mental institute until he got it right with God. Now, why do I make mention of this testimony? Well, you never know what kind of influence you may have on someone that God wants to use in a mighty way. But it is necessary to know what you believe and that you believe the truth of God's word and not some false teaching of man. And I trust that we'll be faithful to study the Word of God, study to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And let's, let's deal with uh, the truth of God's Word, not, not the false teaching of, of man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for...